Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. Well, good morning. Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We are so glad to have you here this morning to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Several weeks ago in our study of Matthew, we came to a section where the religious leaders of the day were trying to trick Jesus and get him to say something that they might make an accusation against him. In doing so, they asked him a question. What is the greatest commandment? To which Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. A simple command, one that none of us really have trouble understanding. We are to love God above anything or anyone. We need to love him more than money. We need to love him more than friends. We need to love him more than family. But we are also called to love him with all that we have. As the parallel account in Mark says, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yet despite it being simple to understand, it is often hard for us to live out. And so the question is, do you love God? Let's just pray. Dear gracious God and Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would just uh, reveal your word to us this morning. I pray that we would just... Uh, be able to to see you uh, in your word, and I just pray that we would uh, worship you for that. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you love God? This was the question that Jesus asked Peter, the same Peter that dropped everything to follow Jesus, the one who jumped out of a boat to walk on water with Jesus, and the one who proclaimed in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter was bold, and yet Jesus asked him, do you love me? Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 21 so we can read this account. Now, the events in the previous chapters set the stage for this conversation. You see, Peter, with all his boldness, had just denied that he even knew Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. He told Jesus he was willing to die for him, and yet when push came to shove, he said, I'm not one of his disciples. So Jesus in order to restore Peter, ask him, do you love me? John chapter 21, verse 15 says, <clears throat> when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, the first time he asked him, do you love me more than these? This question could be taken several different ways. It could be taken, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? It could be taken, do you love me more than these things around us? Like your brother Andrew, who's sitting over there, or your friends, James and John. Or this fishing career that you have run back to. Do you love me more than these things? But either way you take it, Peter's response is the same. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. Now we might expect Peter to say something like, I love you more than anything in this world. Or there is no one who loves you like I do. But twice he simply says, Lord, you know that I love you. The third time Peter's asked this question, though, he gives a different response. He is so confident in his love for the Lord Jesus, he says, Lord, you know all things. You're God. You know that I love you. And because of Peter's love for the Lord, the Lord entrusts his sheep to Peter's care. You see, if we don't love the Lord, we can't serve the Lord. Now, as vital as it is to love the Lord on a personal level, we are also commanded to love the Lord as a church. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars, and in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you have the... You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
You see, the Lord in his charge to the Ephesian church commends them for not letting evil people stay in their church, rooting out the false teachers and enduring patiently for the sake of the Lord. But he had this against them, that they abandoned the love they had at first. It wasn't that they didn't love Jesus anymore. It's that they didn't love him like they did when the church first started. Their actions are good, but they are forgetting why, and more importantly, who they are doing these things for. Why are they kicking evil people out of their church? Is it because they're hard to get along with? No. It's because we love Jesus, and we can't stand to be in the presence of those who do evil. Why are they so particular over who teaches in the church? It's not because they have a few favorite teachers and no one else will do. No, it's because they love Jesus and are concerned with defending who he is and making sure these heretical teachers don't lead his sheep astray. Why does it describe it as enduring and bearing a burden? Is that done just because we like pain and suffering? No, it's done because we love Jesus. And with that comes the target on each one of our backs from his enemy, the devil. And the suffering and pain isn't worth it at all if we don't love Jesus. You see, but we can't love him if we don't know him. And so I thought we could start looking at some of the attributes of God so we could remember who it is that we are to love so dearly. To start out, we are going to look at God's goodness. God's goodness is one of the very first things that we see in Scripture. And so if we turn to Genesis chapter 1, we can see this. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 4 says, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Skipping down to verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 16, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over day and over night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves, and which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, 
it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You see, from the beginning, everything that comes from God is good. In fact, it is very good. In Exodus chapter 33, we see how important God's goodness is. When Moses asked to see God's glory, this is what the Lord says. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, God wants us to understand and know that he is good. It is part of who he is. Moses, you want to see my might, my splendor, and my majesty? You must see my goodness. You see, the Israelites, they often recognize God as being good. Consider these Psalms. Psalm chapter 31, verse 19 says, How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Psalm chapter 25, verse 8 says this, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinners in the way. Psalm 145, verses 4 through 9 says this, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God's goodness is often tied to his grace and to his mercy. And it affects all of us each and every day. You say each and every day. You see, each and every one of us has experienced God's goodness, believer and unbeliever. Every person in this room and on the face of the earth has sinned and as a result is deserving of death. But we are all still sitting here. You see, God has the right to destroy us as soon as we sin, but chooses not to. That is God being good. He has extended that grace to all mankind, and it is referred to as common grace. But this doesn't overlook our sin. It merely delays our sentence. However, there's this thing called saving grace, and it is quite different. It takes his goodness to a whole new level. It doesn't merely delay our sentence. No, Jesus takes our sentence. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5.
Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How good is God? How good is his saving grace? We read of him dying for his enemies. We read of him paying the price for their sin. He is so good. Yet he is true to his other characteristics, like being holy, righteous, and just. You see, his goodness cannot and will not overlook our sin. But by not overlooking our sin, it makes his goodness and our Savior all the more incredible. You see, this goodness, though, is not for all mankind. No, it is reserved for only those who believe in Jesus. So often, though, we don't think of God's goodness in regards to our salvation. We think of it in regards to our circumstance. To show you how dangerous this is, let's look at the life of Joseph. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 37. We'll start reading in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Skip down to verse 18. They saw him from afar, that is his brothers, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. 
that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. Now the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. If God's goodness was based on Joseph's circumstances, we would say something like this. God is good. He has given Joseph a great home, fancy new clothes. But then in our next breath, we would say, how can God be good? He let his brothers sell him into slavery. And if we look at the rest of Joseph's life, we would continue in this thought pattern. God is good. Although he was sold in slavery, he found favor in his master's eyes. But with our next breath, we would say, how could God let him be falsely accused and thrown into jail? Oh, but God is good. He once again found favor with those who were over him, and he was able to interpret dreams and do great things for God. But how could a good God let Joseph be forgotten in jail by the cupbearer whom he helped? Oh, but God is good, though, because eventually he would get his break and become second in command in the nation. And we could go on and on with this, seeing blessing as being God, as God being good and hard times as God not being good. But this would be an awful and incorrect view of his goodness. You see, God is good when you get that promotion at work, the news of a new baby, or the blessing of seeing someone grow in their relationship with the Lord. But God is also good when you're betrayed by your brothers, hear of the death of a loved one, or receive any other kind of bad news. You see, God is good no matter what. And as previously stated, we must look at his goodness in the light of the gospel. You see, Joseph didn't view his wealth or his position of power as God being good. He was looking to something much bigger and much better. Consider what he named his children as evidence of what he thought of the land of Egypt, which was the best this world had to offer. Genesis chapter 41 verse 50 says, Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
Now Joseph recognized God being with him and walking him through each step, but he also recognized that the end goal was to be with God. That is why with his last breath, he makes them swear to bring his bones out of that foreign land and bring them to the land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and his father Jacob. The author of Hebrews writes this about them. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For who, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, they all had their minds set on something better. No, someone better. They wanted heaven, but not for its streets of gold, but for its king. And that is what God's goodness is about. It's not about your circumstance, but rather it's about the gospel. The sinless, holy God of the universe making a way to restore us to himself so we can spend the rest of eternity in worship of him. And that is something our circumstances cannot take away. God is good. Do you think you could love a God like that? Let's pray. Dear gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can see your goodness. We see it all around us, but most importantly, we see it in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming and taking away our sin. Lord, I pray that we would just be reminded of your goodness day by day. And I pray that we would just look to the cross for that. I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 